Numbers 16, 17, and 18, they all seem like they happen one right after another. We mentioned earlier how the book of Numbers, the whole theme of it is obedience versus disobedience. And very quickly, you see in each chapter what happens when the Israelites obey God compared to when they disobey God and the consequences for it. They're on this journey. They're wandering through the wilderness, this 38-year death march, really. And the next chapter, we'll see how they deal with all the dead bodies and things like that. Uh, but 16, 17, and 18, they seem like they happen one right after another. In chapter 16, we saw Korah, his sons, a group he gathers together to come against Aaron, come against Moses, and to come against the priesthood that God had given to Aaron, to Moses, and to their lineage. In chapter 17, God, he has Aaron's rod bud so that everyone will be able to see that Aaron is the chosen man of God to lead the nation of Israel. And now here in chapter 18, God is going to reveal to the Levites and to Aaron that he's not done with them. He's not done with the Levites just because they made a really dumb mistake or just because they bucked against authority. And again, it's a blessing to us to see that our God doesn't just destroy us when we mess up, uh, but he wants to forgive us. He wants us to come back to him, seek that restoration, seek that repentance. That's the only way our sins can be covered. And then he wants to keep working with us. So Numbers chapter 18 verses 1 through 5 it says then the Lord said to Aaron you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary and you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood also bring with you your brethren of the tribe of Levi the tribe of your father that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness they shall attend to your needs and all the needs of the tabernacle, but they shall not come near the articles of the sanctuary and the altar, lest they die, they and you also. They shall be joined with you and attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting for all the work of the tabernacle, but an outsider shall not come near you. And you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. So we see God, he gives the authority to Aaron and to his lineage over the priesthood and over all spiritual things relating to the nation of Israel in chapter 17. Now God, he balances that offer. Here he gives us the great truth within life that whenever we're given authority, we are given much responsibility and consequences for that responsibility. God starts off chapter 18 by telling Aaron, hey, you and your sons, yeah, you have the authority, but now you're going to bear the iniquity if anything goes wrong with the Levites, with the priesthood, and with the whole entire nation of Israel. Aaron, sure, he had the rod that was budding, but now he had to bear the consequence and the punishments for the sanctuary and for the priesthood. I think that's why in James chapter 3, verse 1, it tells us, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Again, to be able to teach in God's house, to be able to teach in children's ministry, youth group, young adults, men's, ladies, there is a stricter judgment awaiting us when we see God face to face. 
Robert Jameson, he says, the honor was weighed in the balance with its burdens and its dangers. Right after the last few chapters, do you want to be held responsible for the spiritual state of this group of people? After they complain every chapter, right? Every turn they start complaining and they get struck by a plague. They get struck by fire. The earth opens hold. Would you like this responsibility, right? But David Guzik, he says, God never gives authority without accountability. The two always go together. And if God gives someone headship, he expects others to submit to them in his order. God also has a special accountability for that person. Again, this is all within the order of God. The roles that God gives us, we'll look at this later on. But we continue in verse 6. He says, Behold, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord, to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Therefore, you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Again, our God is such a God of redemption. Instead of just wiping out the Levites for them, sticking their nose against God, trying to come against Aaron, saying these lies about Moses and Aaron, God, he brings them in closer and he gives them a special task. He gives the whole tribe of Levi to Aaron as a gift. And now he gives to Aaron the lineage of high priests. And now the rest of the tribe of Levi was to serve them. We've mentioned this the past few chapters. Why? Why does Aaron and his lineage get to be the high priests? And why do the rest of the people have to serve Aaron and those knuckleheads, right? Were they more holy? Were they more special? Not at all. They were just given this role. This is the role that God had given to Aaron. And this is the role that God had given to the rest of the Levites. We spoke about this a little bit on Monday night with the young adults, speaking of the roles of a husband and wife. And oftentimes we think God has a problem with women, or God has a problem with church authority, or God has a problem with this, that, or the third. And whenever we have a problem where God has placed us within church, right? I know that never happens in church, but sometimes, right? People get mad at where they're serving or where someone else is serving. Sometimes we have a problem, even in church, the world has affected us so much that we have a problem with the roles of a man and a woman that God has put in Scripture, Some of us, we have a problem with the roles of a husband and wife as we find it in Scripture. But ultimately, our problem is not with the roles. Our problem is with authority. That's what it comes down to. And problems with authority, it's an increasing problem within our nation and our world. Mention this quote with the young adults, right? The season of life we're in, people have a problem with authority. Citizens do not have the same respect for government's authority. Students do not have the same respect for teachers' authority. Women do not have the same respect for men's authority. Children do not have the same respect for their parents' authority. Employees don't have the same respect for their employer's authority. People definitely do not have the same respect for the police authority. And Christians no longer have the same respect for church authority. And is our nation any better for it? Is our nation a better place to live than it was five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago when there was more respect? 
Again, God, he gives each person their different role. We can turn quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And just as God gave Aaron and his sons a role, and he gave the rest of the tribe of Levi their role, God does the same thing in church today within Christianity and within the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 7, here he speaks on the gifts. We've looked at several weeks in a row, the body and how God gives the body different body parts. But here he even specifically mentions the gifts. In verse 4 he says, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Again, each of us here, we have different gifts. And God has purposefully given each of us different gifts so that we can help grow the body of Christ. So we can go preach the gospel and win more disciples. This scripture has been a theme the past few weeks at church. It's Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, he tells us in verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So again, to God, God, he gives to Aaron the priesthood as a gift to him. And to Aaron, he gives the role of serving as a gift for service. Family, how do you see, how do you view service unto God? Do you see it as a gift? Not a gift that you re-give the following Christmas, right? But a gift, a joy, a blessing, a privilege. How do we see service unto God? God straight up tells Aaron, hey, this is a gift for service. And we'll look at this later on. Much of the way we view service, much of the way we see God and God as our contentment relies in what we think we deserve or in what we think is most important. He continues in verse 8. He tells them, the Lord speaks to Aaron. He says, here I myself have also given you charge of my heave offerings and the holy gifts of the children of Israel. I have given them as a portion to you and your sons as an ordinance forever. The heave offering it was used in a couple different offerings. If you're making a peace offering before God, if you're wanting to make a Nazarite vow before God, you would do the heave offering. Or if you were just wanting to give an offering of thanksgiving, it was also the heave offering. And the heave offering, it was literally heaved before the Lord. I don't know if they said heave ho or not, right? But they would heave it and wave it before the Lord. And then whatever remaining meat would stay there, and it was generally the breast or the thigh of an animal, it would belong to the priest. And here we're going to begin to see how the Lord was going to take care of the priests. The priests, they had to do the work of God. 
They had to serve Aaron and do the work of God. And now God is saying, hey, this is how I'm going to provide for you. Verse 9 and 10, he says, this shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, every grain offering, every sin offering, and every trespass offering which they render to me shall be most holy for you and your sons. In a most holy place you shall eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy to you. So what God is saying, hey guys, whatever is left over after, after the offering has been sacrificed to God, this belongs to the Levites and to their sons. However, the Levites needed to see this for what it was. They needed to see it as something that is holy. Something that was set apart from a random citizen of Israel. And now they set this thing apart and aside to give unto God. And that's why they needed to eat it in a most holy place. And today, I believe, practical life application today within churches, I believe this is a part of the reason today that no pastor should be purchasing or drinking and consuming alcohol. Because the paychecks of pastors and church workers, church laborers, it's holy. Because it's money that has been set apart from you guys and from other people. They have set it apart as holy, and now they've offered it unto the Lord. And now as we receive that tithe and offering and we put it all over the church and some of it goes to the pastors, that's something that's holy. And now for us to use it for unholy things, again, it's just not wise. Uh, an article came out this week on alcohol. Again, not so good stuff behind it. But that's another teaching. Verse 11, it says, This also is yours, the heave offering of their gift with all the wave offerings of the children of Israel. I have given them to you and your sons and daughters with you. As an ordinance forever. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Again, interesting for the Levites. Interesting for even pastors today. They, the family, they needed to be clean in order to partake of the tithe and offerings from the people to care for their house and to eat. Verse 12, all the best of the oil. All the best of the new wine and the grain, their first fruits which they offer to the Lord. I have given them to you. Whatever first ripe fruit is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Again, God is announcing to Aaron and to the Levites, hey, I'm going to support you. I'm going to take care of you through the portion of the people's sacrifices for me. I'm going to help support you through that same holy sacrifice. It'll all belong to you. Verse 15 and 16, everything that first opens the womb of all flesh, which they bring to the Lord, whether man or beast, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And those redeemed of devoted things you shall redeem when one month old. According to your valuation for five shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. So one way the Levites would have more than just food and food, really, right? Every sacrifice is food. The one way they'd have more than just food is the money that would go to purchasing or caring for, right, these firstborn children and these firstborn unclean animals. The person, instead of sacrificing it, they would give a certain portion, a certain amount of money 
for this firstborn son or daughter being consecrated to the Lord. But in verse 17 and 18 it says, But the firstborn of a cow, the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and burn their fat as an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. And their flesh shall be yours, just as the wave breast and the right thigh are yours. So firstborn cows, sheep, and goats weren't to be redeemed by money, but instead all of their blood and all of their fat would be offered up to God. And then the priest would take home a brisket, the priest would take home some filet. I don't know if any ribeyes, I don't know if you have a ribeye, if all the fat is already consumed, right? The priest would take home the goat curry, the lamb chops, different things like that, right? So depending what they needed, they'd be excited at the sacrifices coming down the pike. But verse 19, all the heave offerings of the holy things, which the children of Israel offered to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. In other words, this is a covenant free from corruption. Salt was used as a preserving agent and salt was also to be used in every offering. If you can turn there quickly in Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13. Book right next door, Leviticus 2 verse 13 speaking about salt. And sacrifice, it tells us, And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offerings. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. So here you see it's unbiblical to eat without salt, right? Just kidding, just kidding. Salt, what is he talking about here? Salt, it's something that is a preserving agent. And salt also really cannot burn. The burning point for salt is 800 degrees Celsius, which is nothing close that in our houses or any barbecue can really hit. So salt, it's, it cannot burn. Salt, it keeps things pure from rotting. And it speaks of purity. It speaks of preservation. It speaks of wealth. Salt was something very expensive in ancient times. Roman soldiers were given an allowance of salt as part of their pay, as a part of their salary. That's where we get the word salary from. It's from the Latin word salarium, which was the money given to Roman soldiers to buy salt. It's where we get our word salary from. The, whole, uh, the old phrase, someone who's worth their salt. Have you heard anyone say that before? Right? Only the older people are nodding their heads, right? right? Someone who's worth their salt, they'd say that person deserves respect. That person can do their job well. That person is a hard worker, and it's taken from the Roman soldiers that they'd work hard enough to get salt as a part of their pay. Charles Spurgeon on the covenant of salt, he says, by which was meant that it was an unchangeable, incorruptible covenant, which would endure as salt makes a thing to endure so that it is not liable to putrefaction or corruption. Again, God is telling the Levites, this is a promise forever. God makes that promise to us, right? Jesus tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what he's telling the Levites here. No matter what, I'm going to be here for you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure you're well-fed, both you, your sons, and your daughters. 
Verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. Now, a question that we'll answer in a bit is, hey, does it seem fair and right to you that the Levites were not allowed to have any inheritance, not allowed to have any land in the wilderness or in the promised land? Does that seem fair or right to you? You guys might be well church, so you already know the answer to that, right? But Robert Jameson here, he says, the priests nor the Levites were allowed to have any land but to depend entirely upon God who liberally provided for them out of his own portion. And this law was subservient to many important purposes. Number one, it kept the Levites from being filled with the cares and labors of worldly business so that they would be exclusively devoted to God's service. It would also stir a bond of mutual love and attachment between the people and the Levites. That as they performed these religious services for the people, they would have a love for them. This also allowed the Levites to be dispersed among the tribes to minister to the people, that they'd be more useful in instructing and directing the people. This is interesting because a few psalmists would cry out, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. David says that in Psalm 16, verse 5. Asaph, he says in Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26, famous psalm, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. One last psalm here, Psalm 142 David cries out, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. David, he pens this psalm while he's hiding in a cave. You see, David, he was at the place where he has just lost everything. He lost his home. He lost his cushy government job. He lost his future. He lost his future wife. All of his life was down the drain. And now he's on the run to protect his own life. So he's very easily able to cry out, God, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. And some of us, we've been there when you're on the edge of death. Or you have someone you care about and they're on the edge of death. And you're saying, Lord, you're all I got. There's nothing else worthy in this life. You see, for the Levites, this was more than fair. It was more than fair for them to be able to have God as their inheritance. Because their father, the father of the Levites, he's known as Levi. Right? Levi, Levi, to get that. He had really good genes. They all became the Levites. Tribe of Levi. He and his brother Simeon had done some very cruel things as they were growing up. You see, as their father Jacob is on their deathbed, he's saying his last words. He's giving his last will and testament, and he's blessing most of the other brothers. And then in Genesis 49, verse 5 through 7, it says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Starts off good, right? It's all downhill from there. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed 
be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. You see, this was the promise for the tribe of Levi. The promise for them is that Levi and all of his lineage would be cursed. That there'd be none of the honor of Jacob or Israel in their lineage. That they were to be divided and scattered across the land of Israel. But because later on, many generations later on, the tribe of Levi was the only tribe to stand up during the golden calf. I think because their older brothers were the leaders and they decided to be with their older brothers, Moses and Aaron. And they stood up for righteousness. And because they were the only tribe willing to stand up for righteousness, God would bless them and turn that curse around. And you see, many of us, we're like the Levites. We are a lineage of people who were cursed with no hope. But our great high priest... Our great big brother, he put on human flesh, he lived a perfect life, and he died taking our place. So that now if we stand with him, we can go from being accursed to now being God's own inheritance. You could turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and it completes this thought. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Peter tells us, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy." Again, family, I hope that none of us forget where we have come from. I hope you don't forget that moment you realize that God has given you his mercy, that you're not receiving what you justly deserve. And this is so important for us, especially for the parents here. Realize you are not supposed to be like the rest of this world. If you're here and you're a parent and you're a Christian, know that your children, they're not supposed to be just like this world. The things on television, the things on social media, the things on Netflix, streaming devices, YouTube. We are to be different. We are a chosen people. Some would call us a peculiar people, right? A strange people. But we are his own special people. Does your home look like this? Does your home look different and separate from the rest of the world? Or would any coworker come into your house and think nothing different? Your kids watch the same things their kids watch. Your mouth is the same as their mouth. Your refrigerator is just like their refrigerator. Is there any difference in your home? There's no excuses for this. It's scriptural. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Remember, we don't deserve to obtain this mercy. But in his grace and love and kindness, he's allowed us to obtain mercy. A song came to mind. It's uh, called To You, Psalm 86. It's from a band called Enter the Worship Circle. And the bridge goes, your love is all that I need. And when I call you, you will answer me. Your mercy, your mercy, it's more than enough for me. You see, if you've really been saved, if you feel the weight of God's salvation upon you, you realize it's more than enough for you. It's more than enough for me realizing that he saved me, that I'm no longer damned to hell for all of eternity. 
realizing that I'm no longer slave to my sins, it's more than enough to me. And not only does he leave me there, but then he calls me his own. He calls me his slave. He calls me his brother. He calls me his friend. Again, it is more than enough. Any blessing in life after that is just icing on the top. Is it more than enough for you? That Jesus has died for you, he saved you, he's taken your life from hell for all of eternity to heaven for all of eternity. Is that enough in your life to be content? It should, it's more than enough. That's why in Matthew chapter 6 verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father, he's your Father, he gave you his only begotten Son. He knows what we need. But instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Again, the author of Hebrews says, Because Jesus has said, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, we can be content. Any season of life, any car we're driving, any square footage in the house or apartment we own or rent, we can be content. Should we strive for more? Should we strive to do more with what God has given us and the talents he's given us? Absolutely. But should we stress about it? Should we be anxious about it? Should we be striving our whole life just looking for that? Not at all. And the blessing to us, just like the Levites, our inheritance is not of this world. In fact, it's out of this world, right? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it tells us, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's an inheritance incorruptible. It can't be defiled. It does not fade away. It's been reserved in heaven for you and I. All right, some of us here, you've been blessed. You've had an inheritance when a parent passes away or a grandparent or a random uncle you never knew, right? But this inheritance, it's incorruptible. No one in the last minute can marry your mom or dad and steal all the inheritance from you, right? At the last minute, your crazy brother and sister can't get in God's ear, and now all of a sudden your inheritance is gone. No, this inheritance, it's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It does not fade away. God himself has reserved it in heaven for you. Again, is God more than enough? Is God more than enough for you and I? Numbers 18, verse 21. Now we talk about everybody's favorite subject in church. Tithing, in case you didn't read ahead. Uh, Numbers 18, verse 21. He says, Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Hereafter, the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever." Throughout your generations, that among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, 
I have said to them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. So you see, the nation of Israel was to give 10%. That's where I get the word tithe from. It means 10%, and they're to give 10% of what they had in order to support the Levites. In exchange for the Levites working and working within the tabernacle, within the outskirts of the tabernacle, in order for them to do that work, the Israelites would tithe 10% of what they had. And this wasn't just to care for the Levites. This was to be obedient to God. In Malachi chapter 3, the nation of Israel went through a season where they stopped tithing. And you would think that they're just robbing from their brothers, the Levites. Not at all. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 through 10, Malachi, or Malachi, if you want to pronounce it right, he says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, and what have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Again, God, the tithe, it belongs to him. It wasn't just to provide for the Levites. It wasn't just to take care of them. It was to show our love and care and obedience to God. And tithing, it goes way back before the Levitical priesthood. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 8 through 10, it tells us that Abraham, he tithed to Melchizedek long before Levi was even an idea in his father's loins. The interesting thing to us is that the New Testament doesn't carry this order or this command to tithe. Some of us say, I knew it, right? I knew they were lying to me. Instead, Jesus ups the ante just like he does with all sin, right? He tells the Pharisees, hey, you say this sin, you say that sin, this is a sin. But I tell you, if you just think about it in your mind, you've committed that sin, right? Jesus sort of does the same exact thing. Jesus says to the Pharisees in Luke 11, 42, they're tithing. They're tithing perfectly. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rule and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You see the Pharisees, they were getting, right, their salt and their pepper, their mint, their thyme, sazón completo, right? They're getting all their seasonings. And they're literally tithing 10% of it to God. But yet they had no love of God in their heart. They were just following religion. They had no relationship, no love for God. The New Testament was all about love. It's all about our heart. And God, he tells us, we could look at some of these scriptures now. We could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And what we see is that God does not demand a 10% tithe What God demands is a spirit of giving. And there's no amount to it. The best way to look at it is that 10% is a good benchmark. It's a good place to start. And as the Lord does more and more in our heart, or the Lord does more or less in our bank account, then it's up to you and the Lord what He puts in your heart to give. But in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, It says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, 
storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So this isn't the only time in the epistles we see a collection happening for God and for ministry. Just because you go to a church and they pass a plate does not mean that they're unbiblical, right? Some of us, we've grown up in Calvary Chapel our whole lives and we see someone passing a plate and we're about to pass out. Now, if they pass a plate one time and two times and three times and four times and they count it in the back and then they pass it five times, right, and six times, then, then there's dangerous things happening there. We can also turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Again, it's all about our heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, he says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Again, you can read all of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 when you go home, but what God is looking for is that cheerful giver. We shouldn't give out of necessity. You shouldn't give out of someone putting a guilt trip on you. So much bad religion today. They have people give out of guilt. Don't do that. It's not about that. It's about a cheerful giver, not a guilty giver, right, or condemned or manipulated giver. A cheerful giver. Again, we're not under the tithe, but if our heart is how little can I give to please God, again, your heart is not right in this. God loves a cheerful giver. And again, it depends on what you have. That's what it's saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're putting a tithe, if you're writing out checks and you know they may not make it or not, or they may bounce, if you know banking, that takes more money away from the church. That doesn't give more money to the church. So again, God, what he looks for is for us to have the right heart. We know the widow that gave the two mites. God saw that. Jesus saw that as the greatest gift that day in the temple and in the tabernacle. So again, with us, do we trust God and are we that cheerful giver? And if we're stingy with our money with God, it's really a dangerous place to be because Luke chapter 16, verse 11, Jesus says, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If you can't be faithful with money, how is God going to entrust you with true riches of eternity? Some Christians, we look at wealthy people with disgust, and that's not the right heart whatsoever. We should be faithful in the little things so that God can give us much. And if we can't be faithful in our budget at home, how is God going to give us now many people to minister to and spiritual gifts to minister to when we can't be faithful with unrighteous mammon? Again, it all goes back to our heart. We go back to Numbers 18. Numbers 18, again, this wasn't just a gift for the Levites. The Levites weren't hanging around doing nothing or getting fat and lazy. The Levites, they were working. 
If you've ever shot and cleaned an animal, if you've ever had to clean a fish, you know it is work. Now imagine the priests sacrificing cow after cow after cow, gutting it, cleaning it, sacrificing it, getting the fire going. Again, this is hard work. It's for their labor. Again, laziness has no room or part in working at Calvary Chapel, Miami, and it should have no part in working at any church. It shouldn't have any part in any Christian's heart. If you're working for a church, it should be hard work. It's in return for the work which they perform. And any pastor, we should be able to work. No one should be in the ministry because you failed at every other job. That is not the reason to be in the ministry. Right? Sadly, none of the teachers here, none of the teachers here. But each of us, we had that one teacher in elementary school or middle school or high school. Hey, why are you a teacher? Oh, I failed at every other job I did, so now I'm a teacher. Oof, you hear that as a parent? All right, new school, new class, new something, right? Same mindset for a pastor, for someone working at a church. It shouldn't be because this is the only place that you can survive working because Christians are merciful or gracious. No, it should be this is what God has placed in your heart. You want God to be your inheritance, and now you're going to work as hard as you can to honor God and to bless his people. In verse 25, we see how God, he wants the Levites, he wants the pastors to lead by example. This is what he wants. It's not just, hey, you guys tithe and we sit back and do nothing. No, we should all be giving, and now the pastors should be the most giving people. I think we're very blessed. Our church is very hospitable. Our church is very giving. Our church is very loving. And I think that all started off in our pastor, Pastor Raz and Isel. And that's continued to trickle down in each and every one of us. We should each be the leaders when it comes to giving. In Numbers chapter 18 verse 25, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak thus to the Levites, and say to them, When you take from the children of Israel... The tithes which I have given you from them as your inheritance, then you shall offer up a heave offering of it to the Lord, a tenth of the tithe. So what were they to do with the tithe? Tithe again, right? They got 10% from the people. These Levites, these priests were to give 10% back to God. Verse 27, and your heave offering shall be reckoned to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress. Thus you shall also offer a heave offering to the Lord from all your tithes, which you receive from the children of Israel, and you shall give the Lord's heave offering from it to Aaron the priest. Of all your gifts you shall offer up every heave offering due to the Lord, from all the best of them, the consecrated part of them. Again, when we give to the Lord, may we not be giving the worst of the worst, right? And God knows our heart. That's why all throughout the Old Testament, the first five books, God says, hey, it has to be a perfect lamb. Don't get the lamb with three legs. Don't get the lamb with the limp, right? Don't get the lamb that the ox sat on and is there. Hey, Lord, this is, this is your lamb, right? No, give to God your best. Don't give him your scraps. Verse 30, therefore you shall say to them, when you have lifted up the best of it, then the rest shall be accounted to the Levites as the produce of the threshing floor and as the produce of the winepress. You may eat it in any place, you and your households, for it is your reward, once again, for your work in the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall bear no sin because of it when you have lifted up the best of it, but 
you shall not profane the holy gifts of the children of Israel, lest you die. So now the priests, what they were to give was the very best. The 10% they were to gather wasn't like the worst of the 10%. No, even the priests, they were to give the 10% of the best of what came in. The last verse is interesting because later on in 1 Samuel, Eli the priest, his two sons, instead of waiting for the end of the sacrifice to take what belonged to them, they would extortion men and women and try to grab it ahead of time. And because of that, both of these young men, Hophni and Phinehas, died on the same day. And you know what's interesting? Tying it all back to 1 Peter, how we are a peculiar people. We are a holy priesthood. Eli, we don't see him sinning anywhere near where his son sinned. But because Eli allowed the sins of his sons to go unchecked within the house of God, his life was called for as well. So again, each of us as parents, may we not think, oh, it's just happening in my house. It's not me. No, it's happening in your house. It's happening in my house. I'm going to have to stand before God. Each of us will have to give an account. So again, may we know we are that kingdom of priests today. Our inheritance, it's waiting for us up in heaven. But hopefully we're giving more. As we looked at on Sunday, right? That our life savings, our 401k is not just in this earth. You should have one in this earth. But you're sending treasures up to heaven where moth, thief, and rust have zero effect on it.